Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible. I'm Evan. And I'm Aaron. And this is a podcast where we read the Bible together every year and talk about what we learned along the way. If you would like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and look up the Grove Church in Marysville, Washington. You can find our plan there. We also have the plan available on our website, grove.church. And if you're jumping in today, you can join us on day 232 on the plan. We're almost 100 days before the end of the podcast. It's crazy. Just like the fall of Jerusalem. It's coming. Well, way to to bring the mood. Spoiler! Uh, Yes, and as you're listening along, uh, we would love to answer your questions. That was a great transition of of thought, by the way. Uh, But we would love to take time as much as we can week after week to answer all of the questions that come from you, our dear listeners. Uh, There's three ways to send us those questions. One is an email. The email address is info at grove.church. Make sure to put in the subject line a podcast question. Or you can direct message us on social media. We have a Facebook page and an Instagram page. Handle, really, if you will. Uh, and both of those handles are the Grove CH. So facebook.com forward slash the Grove CH or the same on Instagram as well. So we'd love for you to, to send us those questions so we can take time to answer them. There you go. All right. Well, this week we are starting off in the book of Ezekiel. Surprise. So, Continuing in the book of Ezekiel. Yeah, that's true. Well, starting off the episode in the book of Ezekiel. Yes, we'll be in yes. Ezekiel for a little bit here. Uh, Jeremiah will also, you know, we're going to go back to Jeremiah for a little bit. So yep. that'll be fun. And we're just in, we're in all of the really depressing parts of the prophets because we're just, it feels like. <laughs> The way that David was really long and stretched out and also the way that Hezekiah's reign is really long and stretched out, it feels like we're just spending weeks in the month before the fall of Jerusalem or however long the actual period is. But yeah, so we're, we've are we been talking about it for a while. We will be talking about it. But then we're going to get to, I, I think, one of my favorite parts of biblical history, which is the post-exilic period when the when the Jews return. Because I feel like we don't talk about that time hardly ever. Yeah. So, and, then, and then we're... Well, oftentimes, because when we read the Bible as it is laid out, we get to that point before we get to the prophets. So if we're reading True. it in a typical reading plan, we'll hit the, the post-exilic when they come back. But then we'll jump into the prophets. That was how it was actually last year because of the way that the, 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 I get the biblical canon lays out the books in order, right. not chronologically. So that's true. So, so that's go. part of the reason why. And then after that, listeners, gospels, and that'll be a fun time. Everyone loves Yeah, it just switches uh, towards the end of September. Just going to switch. We're going to go straight from Malachi into Matthew. Boom. There we go. All right. Actually, Mark, anyways. So anyways, sorry. This week. Like I said, starting off in Ezekiel, uh, we get a parable. It's it's really interesting. It's the parable of a fate of a vine. Um, so we're told that there's so sorry. Ezekiel sees a vision where there's a great eagle that takes the top of a cedar tree and plants it in a city of trade by water. And when I say city of trade, I just mean like a city that's on a port that is able to uh, have trade. Uh, that vine or that small branch shoots into a large vine. Eventually, a second eagle comes and the vine turns all of its attention, including its roots, towards that second eagle. Uh, When God tells Ezekiel to say these things, it's described as a riddle, which is is fitting because, honestly, I have no idea how to interpret this bad boy. Like, I've read this thing like four times and I was like, I've got... I've got nothing. I mean, the eagles are probably Assyria and Babylon is what I'm guessing, but I don't know. I mean, yeah. Luckily, we're told how to interpret it. Um, It's a parable against Zedekiah who had thrown away the law of God and rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar, uh, against God's specific command. Because of this, Yahweh declares through Ezekiel that he shall be punished and die for his transgressions. So Zedekiah, not a great king, uh, both in the political and the spiritual sense, and he's making a ton of mistakes that are going to lead to the fall of Jerusalem. Chapter 18, 
is a fascinating look into the way that God sees the people of Israel in the midst of their wickedness. Uh, first, there is a story of three generations of men. So the grandfather is righteous, the father is wicked, and the son is righteous. And God makes it clear that each man will receive his just reward or punishment from God. Uh, the way I would interpret this is that the grandfather is that generation of like under Josiah, and the father is the generation under Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, and Zedekiah. Uh, and then the son is this generation that's going into the exile. And essentially what God is saying is, hey, remember that that generation with Josiah, I delayed the fall of Jerusalem because they were ser- they, because they were serving me. Now this generation is being punished. And then there's a future generation. Essentially what God is saying is you're not going to be punished for the sin of your fathers. Uh, you will be punished for your own sin, so don't do that. <laughs> Repent. And then essentially God is promising to bring them back. So really cool moment there. Uh, and it's kind of funny because it seems like the people are kind of fighting him on on this a little bit. Like, wait, no, like, shouldn't we be holding the, the sin of the fathers against the sons? Which A, shows that they're not really doing a good job of reading the law very often. Uh, but B, it also shows God's heart that he's not looking to just completely condemn all the way down the generational lines. Um, and then God's, yeah, God spared the grandfather generation is punishing the father generation and imploring the son generation to turn from wickedness. Um, and I also love this peak that we get into God's heart. This is Ezekiel 18, 23. And it says, have I, this is God speaking through Ezekiel. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked declares the Lord God and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. Uh, and essentially the idea there is God doesn't just enjoy killing the wicked. What he would rather have them happen. What he would rather have happen is them turn and worship and repent, which they uh, obviously, this generation of Israelites, they do. Spoilers for the exilic period. Uh, in chapter 19, it's a poem lamenting the state of two princes of Israel. This is probably Jehoahaz and Jehoiakim. Uh, both were cubs of a proud lioness and have been brought low to live captive in foreign lands due to their sin and hubris. So remember, Jehoahaz is taken prisoner in Egypt and Jehoiakim is taken prisoner in Babylon. Uh, both of them die in foreign lands. Chapter 20 will feel super familiar as we've been reading through the prophets. Uh, It goes through the history of the people of Israel and their rebellion against Yahweh at every step of the way. In the back half of the chapter, we also see God promise to restore his people after a time in exile. So again, as we've been reading through the prophets, a lot of them go through kind of just a history lesson of, hey, you know, lest you think that God is punishing you just because you've been unfaithful in this particular moment, he's been very slow to anger throughout the entire history of the people of Israel. So it's one of those things where it's laying out God's case for being able to um, not break covenant because he's not breaking covenant. The people of Israel broke the covenant first, but for why God is allowing the punishment to happen. Uh, chapter 21 sees Ezekiel in, instructed to prophesy that God has drawn his sword against Israel and also Ammon. Uh, the language there is terrifying. As you read through Ezekiel 21, just imagine for a moment hearing that and knowing that it's directed at you. Like that would that would not be fun. Uh, chapter 22 shows Yahweh laying out his case against Jerusalem, including their shedding of blood and their idol worship. Um, and so again, like and a lot in a lot of the prophets we see this almost language of a lawyer where God is not God is not just punishing willy-nilly like you'll see in some mythologies where it's just you know one day the gods are upset and they decide to punish the people like God is making sure that the people of Israel understand no this is exactly why you're being punished this is exactly why I'm allowing this to happen uh, and there's no room to say that God is not just for for what he's allowing to happen 
Chapter 23 is a really interesting parable involving two sisters. Uh, I don't know how to pronounce the name. So they represent Samaria and Jerusalem, though. So we're just going to call them by that. Uh, In this parable, both we're told that they play the whore in Egypt, and then eventually uh, they return to Israel. Uh, Samaria falls in love with Assyria, and then I guess they kind of both do. Samaria is killed by her Assyrian lovers. Jerusalem sees this and grows even more corrupt, and is like, oh, wow, that's a bummer. Uh, And then God pronounces his judgment on Judah. So it's kind of it's kind of interesting, and I also think it's important for us to point. Out, we 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 noticed this last year, or at least this was the first time that I ever noticed it. But there was apostasy in Egypt, where I've kind of always assumed that the people in Israel, the people of Israel, were in Egypt. They were serving God, worshiping Him, and then eventually deli- they're delivered. But no, it, it talks about how they're they're pulled towards polytheism and worshiping other gods was in Egypt where they were clearly worshiping the gods of Egypt as well. And so that, and that also explains why it's so immediately is a problem where they, I mean, they, they see the Red Sea part and then immediately make the golden calf in worship. So it, it, it explains a little bit of that. Um, and then after this story, God pronounces his judgment on Judah. It says, and this is still within the parable, thus I will put an end to your lewdness and your whoring begun in the land of Egypt so that you shall not lift up your eyes to remember them or to remember Egypt. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I will deliver you into the hands of those who you, whom you hate, into the hands of those from whom you turned in disgust. And they shall deal with you in hatred and take away all the fruit of your labor and leave you naked and bare. And the nakedness of your whoring shall be uncovered. Your lewdness and your whoring have brought this upon you because you've played the whore with the nations and defiled yourself with their idols. You have gone the way of your sister. Therefore, I will give her cup into your hands. Um, and in case you're wondering, there was that, the, the word whore was used a lot in that first. This is the this is very much the metaphor that God is going with here. I also, it's funny because um, last year we talked a lot about kind of, I, I realized that the story of Judah and Kings is kind of the fulfillment of that moment where they tell Samuel that they want a King. They want to be like the other nations. And then it ends with them being like the other nations. Um, It's interesting how in this, in this story, you're seeing the completion of remember when the people of Israel grumbled and they said, we should just go back to Egypt. Cause at least in Egypt, we had all these different things. And and metaphorically, they are going back to Egypt here, where they're kind of, they they went back to Egypt in the sense of they were worshiping other gods, they were going back into the polytheism that they left, and as well as literally, they're trying to form an alliance with Egypt, which is what Zedekiah is doing right now, and it's it's not going to work out very well. It's true. Oh, man. Um, okay, so after that, we jump out of Ezekiel. We're going to go to the, some different passages in Kings. Uh, there's just two, ver- there's three verses, so we're just going to read them. So we get in 2 Kings 24, 20 through 25, 1 through 2. It says, For because the anger of the Lord came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them out of his presence and Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. So that happens. And then in 2 Kings 25, 1 through 2, it says, and in the ninth year of his reign, in the 10th month, on the 10th day of the month, in case you're wondering exactly when this went down, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And they built siege works around it. So the city was besieged till the 11th year of King Zedekiah. So this is a two-year siege. Or at least a year, or at least a year and uh, two months. But still, this is a very long siege that the people of Jerusalem are about to endure. And I love, um, I love this the way the chronological plan is working here because it is it is fun to see 
Ezekiel, who remember, he's not in Israel. He is in exile in the lands of Babylon. Um, and he's prophesying about the siege of Jerusalem and about what's going to happen. Jeremiah is also prophesying the same thing, prophesying the same things, but he's in Jerusalem when this is all happening. So it's very cool to see the accounts of Ezekiel and Jeremiah merged here, and you get you get a really good picture of what their ministries looked like and how they were similar, and also how they're very different. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of Jeremiah, we also read Jeremiah fifty two three through five and thirty nine one. Uh, these passages offer the exact same information as the King's passage. So uh, I mean, it's cool, but I didn't even see really anything that was that different. So it's kind of just a repeat of the information there. Uh, Back to Ezekiel 24 through 25. Chapter 24 begins with Ezekiel receiving word from the Lord that the day that Jerusalem is put under, sorry, he receives word from the Lord the day that Jerusalem is put under siege. So God is like, hey, it's begun. Uh, the people are told that God will not relent. This siege is the real deal. Or in other words, this is this is not the case where, because Jerusalem has been under siege before uh, and been delivered famously with Hezekiah, right? Where it was, uh, oh, what's the name of that Assyrian king? Tiglath-Pilisar? Is that? Anyway, one of them. Or what's the other one though? The other, Sennacherib, one of them. I think it was Sennacherib actually. That doesn't matter. Sorry, listeners, I get, I get sidetracked sometimes. Uh, but one of the great Assyrian kings comes and besieges Jerusalem and then God delivers them through the hand, uh, through Hezekiah. So really cool there, uh, but this is not going to happen. And then this is, well, last year we really struggled with this. This year, it's, it's it, this is just a huge bummer passage. Um, and it's in one of the most painful metaphors of any prophet. And what I mean by that is oftentimes God commands the prophets to act out a metaphor to show uh, a picture on earth of what God is saying in heaven. So Ezekiel famously, he's already had to kind of build a model of Jerusalem and lay on his side and declare uh, how to basically declare woe woe over the city. Uh, One of the, probably the most famous one, or at least one of the most famous ones is Hosea, who is commanded to go marry a woman that God knows will be unfaithful to him to show how Israel has been unfaithful to God. Uh, Here, Ezekiel is told that his wife is about to die and he is commanded to not mourn. Or in other words, he's not supposed to do sackcloth. He's not supposed to do ashes. He's not supposed to show any mourning at all. He is supposed to just accept the death of his wife and move forward. And this is to show that the Jews are commanded to not mourn the loss of Jerusalem. So something incredibly painful is about to happen to Hezekiah. He is not to mourn. Something incredibly painful is about to happen to the the Jewish people, and they are commanded not to mourn as well. Um, so really tough. I mean, it's just like that. That sucks. That, yeah. That's a that's a huge bummer. Um, and I, I even like the way God describes it is like the, I'm taking away the light of your life and those sort of things. So um, it's clear that this would have been a very painful thing for for Ezekiel to do, and it's a, obviously a very painful thing that God is uh, that God is happening, but he's or God is causing to happen, but he's showing through this essentially that the attitude that he wants the people of Israel to have. Well, chapter 25 is a little bit of a nighter note, a light, sorry, a nighter note, a lighter note uh, for, for Israel, at least. <laughs> so it's God uh, dishing out punishments to the surrounding nations. And so this, you know, this is a little bit better to read. Uh, Ammon is being punished for rejoicing when Judah fell and profaning God's sanctuary. Moab and Seir are rejoicing, are punished for rejoicing over Jerusalem's fall as well. And then Edom and Philistia are punished for taking revenge against Jerusalem. Uh, Edom always makes me sad because I, I've said it before, but they should have been like the sister nation to mm-hmm. Israel. Uh, remember, Edom is de- descended from Esau. Israel is descended from Israel slash Jacob is his other name. Uh, and 
at the end of their lives, the brothers make up and they are friends and the nations of Edom and Israel are friends. That's kind of where we leave it in Genesis. And then as they go into exile and come back, they, sorry, as the Israelites go into exile in Egypt and come back, all of a sudden that is not the case anymore. And Edom is a enemy of Israel for the rest of their history. So just a bummer that that's the way that works out. Well, jumping over to Jeremiah, remember him. Uh, he is in the city as it's getting ready to fall, and he is commanded to tell Zedekiah that he will be captured and die in Babylon because Jeremiah never gets to deliver good news. Uh, Yahweh then rebukes his people for a really interesting event. Uh, and so, I, I, yeah, speaking of things, you just kind of you just kind of gloss over. You don't realize what's happening. Um, so, think back, listeners. You're gonna go. We're gonna go back a long time to like probably February. Uh, think back to the law when we were reading through all of that. You might remember that one of the laws is that every seven years in in Israel, there's a year of jubilee when all of the slaves are to be set free. So essentially, the people who sell themselves into uh, into slavery, the people who are captured in war, all those different things, uh, they are to be set free every seven years. So slavery is not meant to be a permanent institution for the person in the nation of Israel, unless the, the slave chooses so. Uh, apparently, Judah has not been doing this for quite some time. Uh, we don't know how long, I would assume during the reign of Josiah, that the year of Jubilee was happening because Josiah was, his whole thing was that he discovered the law and then immediately started following it word by word. So I, I would assume this has just been a couple generations that they went back on this. Uh, but yeah, and, and it's, it's kind of, Zedekiah is a real jerk here. So what he does is he he declares all the slaves in Jerusalem free in order to fight. So essentially, in, I would assume this is during, remember the last time that Jerusalem is under siege and they leave to go deal with the Egyptians for a little bit. So Zedekiah frees all the slaves, gives them weapons. He's like, all right, we're fighting together, bros. It's me and you. We're equals now. This is awesome. And then they, they get ready to fight. And then when the armies leave, they just put them all back into slavery. And so Zedekiah, he reneges on this whole, on the gift that he had given them. Uh, and so because of this, I love God's judgment, the way he phrases it. So this is Jeremiah 34, 17. It says, therefore, thus says the Lord, you have not obeyed me by proclaiming liberty. Everyone to his brother and to his neighbor, behold, I proclaim you to liberty. And like, whoa, thanks God. Liberty to the sword and pestilence and to famine, declares the Lord. I will make you a whore to all the kingdoms of the earth. And so I just love the wordplay there where it's like, hey, you declared freedom and it wasn't what you, it, and the, you declared freedom to the slaves and it wasn't what it should have been. It wasn't what they thought it was going to be. I declare freedom to you and it's freedom to go die of pestilence and famine. So... Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know. It's, <laughs> I just love, I love Ezekiel and Jeremiah. There's some really, I love the way that um, God kind of flips the script on some people. And I'm, I'm also thinking of the Jeremiah passage where it's like, hey, where are all your false prophets who said this wasn't going to happen? I'm, I'm missing it. Like sometimes God enjoys snarkiness. So, yeah, sometimes God's a little in the best way. God's a little sarcastic and snarky in His judgments, and I'm and I'm here for it because you know sometimes we deserve it. Uh, in chapter 21 of Jeremiah, Zedekiah asks if Yahweh will now deliver Jerusalem from Nebuchadnezzar. Um, I put in the, you think by now he'd know the answer. The answer. It's, it's, it's no, it's not happening. Um, the answer is, of course, no, with God saying that he will be fighting against the city himself. So pretty darn intense. And so last week, I think we talked about, I can't remember if it was, I think it was Ezekiel, maybe it was Jeremiah though, where he says, even if you win the victory and you defeat the nations of Babylon, I will give strength to the wounded men of Babylon and they will burn the the city. In uh, this one, it's God using the picture of he will literally be within the army of Babylon fighting alongside of them. So it, it's you can't get much more clear than this, that there is no escaping what's about to happen. 
Uh, back to Ezekiel in the beginning of chapter 29 is a, sorry, the beginning of chapter 29 is a really interesting prophecy about Egypt. Uh, Pharaoh is told that Yahweh is against him and that the land will be made desolate. However, there is also a promise of return from exile, very similar to Israel's. Uh, Egypt will once again inhabit their lands. However, they will never be the superpower that they once were, which is true. Uh, as, if you look at history, after this period, Egypt still exists, but they are either always subservient to other empires or they exist in a very weakened state um, after that. So it's good. Yeah. Like Cleopatra, for instance, uh, was Greek. So we, we like, she's a very famous Egyptian leader, but at, in, in the moments after this, the Egyptians are ruled over by the empires. And most famously, it's the Alexandrian empire uh, with the Ptolemies with the silent P for some reason. And then you get into the Roman period where they're just kind of a, a sub vassal of Rome. So Egypt never again, regains its original power that it had, which, I mean, for the better part of human history, they were the greatest power for sure. Very true. Very true. For their, for sure in that region. And you could argue in the world. So it's, their fall is, is great. Uh, later in chapters 30 through 31, uh, we see the prophecy concerning the downfall and death of Pharaoh himself. And then in chapter 31, Egypt is compared to Assyria, uh, which actually makes sense. Both are mighty empires who would have, who would be conquered by Babylon. Uh, both were also two of the only superpowers to survive the Bronze Age collapse. So they make it out of that era where all of the other empires are falling, only then to fall later. Uh, and then like Assyria was utterly broken, so Egypt would be utterly broken. And then this is where uh, all of these passages end in Ezekiel 31, verse 18. Whom are you thus like in glory and in the greatness among the trees of Eden? You shall be brought down with the trees of Eden to the world, world below. You shall lie among the uncircumcised with those who are slain by the sword. This is Pharaoh and all his multitude declares the Lord God. So basically it's God saying that you're going to die just like everyone else and that Egypt will be laid low. So a bummer if you're Pharaoh to read about that, but there you go. It's God's judgment. Uh, we're going to keep moving on into Jeremiah with Aaron's passages here in a little bit, but before we do, we do want to take a moment to remind you to leave us a five-star review on whatever app you're listening on, uh, particularly Spotify and Apple Podcasts. That really helps. It just helps with the algorithm to get out there to more people, continue to grow. Um, it's fun with our, our host site is giving us like a little bit more information about like, hey, here's where people are listening to. So we can actually click on countries and even see like regions and stuff like that. So uh, it's it's fun to look at there. We don't have any. I was looking at Canada. We don't have anyone in the <laughs> in Yukon or the Northwest Territories or none of it anymore. So it's like, you know, Sad. a little bit hurtful. But we have people in Wales in the Isle of Man. That's why you got to share it That's so that cool. way these unreached areas can be reached there by you our go. beautiful podcast. And if you leave a written review on Apple Podcasts, we will uh, read it on air and give you a shout out just because we like to we like to do that for our listeners. All right. So, Aaron, what is going on in the book of Jeremiah? Well, the siege is happening. So, um, surprise. This is where we spend a ton of time. Um, but, yeah, so we'll start. We'll continue this week in Jeremiah 32. Um and this is where Jeremiah is still technically under house arrest in the king's courtyard. Um, but then the, the chapter that will detail the prophetic uh, analogy where uh, Jeremiah's cousin, uh, Hanamel, shows up and says, hey, buy my land, buy my territory in Benjamin, because you have the right to do so. Um, and so he does, and then he inquires of the Lord. So he, he does the work. We see this in chapter 32. He does the work to for. Uh, to confirm the appropriate process back in the day to purchase the land, meaning the fair payment was documented. There was witnesses that signed this uh, the scroll, which was a sealed contract. And then it was handed over to Baruch, who was a scribe. I'm pretty sure we're going to hear the name Baruch later on. He's a, he's a good guy. Um, 
So he hands it over. So then this purchasing of the field becomes legit. Um, it becomes a, a solid agreement that happens. And then in the process, because again, remember, Jeremiah is watching and, and foreseeing the uh, destruction and, and conquering of Jerusalem. And so then he inquires of the Lord. He asks God why um, this is about to happen or this happens because of the siege that was underway uh, from the Babylonians. And then we see this in verse 26 to 35, um, well, that it's it's important because you see this parallel now. Like Just like with, with the prophets, for the most part, part of their lives are to demonstrate God's prophetic utterance of pro- God's prophetic direction. And so the, the beauty of this is, is in verses 26 to 35 of chapter 32, I'm not going to read it, but uh, I just want to, like, you see, because um, as we lead to this response of God's reason for the buying of this, the property, you actually get a really clear picture of why God is allowing Babylon to conquer the Israelites. And, and Evan talked about it already a little bit. But it really does detail out the sin and rebellion of God's people. And it's not just, hey, your fathers and fathers and fathers, but it just it details um, the, the reality of sin and rebellion, which is the cause for God's wrath. Uh, and then we see in verse 34, the, the detail of God's intent and promise to bring back his people. And this is what I want to read because I think this is, the, this is like the final capstone to why uh, Jeremiah was to buy the property of his, his cousin Hanamel from the land of Benjamin. Uh, And it says this in verse 42 to 45, it says, for this is what the Lord says, just as I've brought all this terrible disaster on these people, so I am about to bring on them all the good I am promising them. Fields will be bought in this land about which you were saying it's a desolation without people or animals. It's been handed over to the Chaldeans, another way or another word for the Babylonians. And then in verse 44 says, fields will be purchased, the transaction written on a scroll and sealed, and witnesses will be called on in the land of Benjamin, in the areas surrounding Jerusalem and in Judah's cities, the cities of the hill country, the cities of the Judean foothills, and the cities of the Negev, because I will restore their fortunes. This is the Lord's declaration. So in chapter 32, we see this moment where Jeremiah purchases this land for a sum of silver, and it's a prophetic promise that what is right now being viewed and it will and it will unfold, we'll see in the next few chapters that we reread, that there will be destruction, that there will be a famine, that there will be, uh, in essence, it's not a land worth buying, but he because God's promise will be fulfilled, um, he will show that there will be purchases and land tra- transactions and wealth and prosperity returning to the land again. Uh, and so that's that's the picture of chapter 32 that we see. Uh, play out. Again, Jeremiah's life is a model for God's future promises. Chapter 33 of Jeremiah will continue this description of God and explanation of God's wrath and punishment. Uh, I call it with his tool, the Babylonians or the Chaldeans. Um, But also in the same lines, we'll see God's promise to redeem and restore what he has removed. Um, And we see there's a reminder of the promise made to David. Uh, And so God brings Jeremiah Jeremiah's mind back to the line of David, back to the promise he gave David that there will always be someone from his line on the throne. Um, and then he makes this statement, which I thought was really, it's kind of a really uh, powerful thing to consider uh, that I, sometimes it's easy to glance over, even as Evan said earlier about a separate passage, but it says this in chapter 33, verse 19 to 21. It says, the word of the Lord came to, the, came to Jeremiah. This is what the Lord says. If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night so that day and night cease to come after at their regular time, then also my covenant with my servant David may be broken. If that could happen, 
then he would not have a son reigning on his throne and the Levitical priests would not be my ministers. Uh, and I think sometimes even in the conversation of the line of David, the promise to the Levitical priesthood is sometimes forgotten too. Uh, and so I love this picture because in essence, God is saying, listen, if, if, you, can, if you can break it, the promise that I have to provide day and night for the sun to rotate, the earth that I created, if you can, if you can stop that from happening, then you could also stop my promise from being fulfilled of David having a servant on the throne. Um, and we all know that it's, I mean, that's that's such a uh, powerful analogy or example that it's just reinforcing the potency and the faithfulness of God's promise and, to, and his trustworthiness to, to fulfill his promises too. Um, so I, I, I just love that picture that's painted in chapter 33 there. Uh, we continue reading this week um, and we jump over to Ezekiel. Uh, we'll see Ezekiel 26 to 28 where the prophecies shift for a moment. Um, again, Ezekiel in exile, he then is told to turn towards Tyre. Um, and a little bit, I don't know if we've ever talked about this. Uh, and so just a, just a quick little highlight of what Tyre, Tyre and Sidon, Sidon are oftentimes coupled together. Um, but Tyre was the most powerful city on the Phoenician coast. Um, the Phoenicians were like the remnants of the people of Canaan from that were left over from the Israelites coming into the land. Uh, because if you remember, they didn't fully kill everybody off anyways. And they, oh, I was gonna say, you can continue. No, you're good. Go. Uh, I was going to, just to jump, they're also a very seafaring people. Yes. Is what they're famous Tyre for. Tyre is on an island. They are a very fortified city. Um, and they're literally on an island. So they're, they're very difficult to conquer. Even the Assyrians, there was like a five-year fight or a siege to try and take over Tyre. They get tired. They gave up because they couldn't, they couldn't get I, to the island. Yeah. A, a, a fortified island is one of the most difficult things to conquer in the, especially in the ancient world. It's insane. Yeah, so they're viewed uh, in in modern time, in modern biblical times at the time of this writing. Tyre is is a powerhouse. Tyre is is a place that is uh, symbolic of might, of wealth, of strength. It's a port city, so there's there's a lot of prosperity there. Um, and so Ezekiel is then told to turn towards Tyre and prophesy against Tyre. Um, because if you, if you don't remember this, if you do remember this, good, but if you don't, it's okay. Tyre did join in with Judah to revolt against Babylon. Um, but Tyre's confidence was in their might and what they could, and what they were able to accomplish in their wealth. And so chapters 26 to 28 is a breakdown of the prophecies against Tyre. In essence, God's saying, Hey, you think you're mighty and powerful. I'm actually better than you. I'm more powerful than you. So I'm going to show you because I'm going to take you out. Um, so we see this, and I'm going to read a little bit of snapshots of this as we get into 26. Uh, it says this in 26, the first six verses. It says, In the 11th year of the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, because Tyre said about Jerusalem, Aha, the gateway to the peoples is shattered. She has been turned over to me, and I will now be filled... Or I, I will now be filled, or I will be filled now, sorry, that she lies in its in ruins. Therefore, this is what the Lord God says. See, I am against you, Tyre. I will raise up many nations against you, just as the sea raises its waves. They will destroy the walls of Tyre and demolish her towers. I will scrape the soil from her and turn her into a bare rock. She will become a place to the in the sea to spread nets, for I have spoken. This is the declaration of the Lord. She will become a plunder for the nations and her villages on the mainland will be slaughtered by the sword. They will know that I am the Lord. And I love this wordplay and this picture that God gives gives Ezekiel for Tyre because Tyre was confident in its might, confidence in its protection about being on an island. And God uses the very picture 
uh, of them being on an island says, hey, listen, I'm going to actually, want, I'm the one who created the ocean, so I'm going to show that it's going to rip you t- to shreds and bring you a bare rock. And that's, in essence, it's saying, I will I will take your tower and your, your fortress and your place and destroy it down to coral to where fish will gather and hang out, which is why it's a good place to throw nets. Um, they boast in their maritime successes and proficiencies. And so there's a lot of, there's a lot of, fun little word plays that God's going to give throughout the, the the next few chapters in regards to Tyre. And they were they were boasting in the fact that they may have joined Judah in revolting, but they were boasting in the fact that Judah got de- got devastated, got destroyed, got taken over by uh, Nebuchadnezzar and, and the Chaldeans too. Continue, uh, you'll see that the imagery uh, is also, is, is this picture of, of Tyre being known for in essence, being impregnable, then it's not easy to conquer. Uh, so God, in essence, is showing that he is more powerful than even the powerhouse of the coastline. Chapter 27 of Ezekiel will paint uh, the picture of Tyre sinking, which again, it's on an island. They think that they're secure and safe. No one can get to them. Uh, they trusted in their own ability. Uh, and yet that's what led to them, uh, what led them out to sea and sink because of their pride. In essence, it says that they, oh, the picture is they overloaded their boats with their prosperity, with the wealth, with their defenses, with their armories. And when the rowers rowed them into the ocean, it caused them to sink and it weighed their boat down. And that's what caused their demise. And so God paints this picture of where you have boasted in your proficiency, your uh, your strength, your might, your power, which is in shields and swords. Uh, it's actually the thing that's going to cause you to sink because you're so caught up and prideful in your own ability to save. Again, God's saying, I'm more powerful than you are. Uh, and then chapter 28 will focus on the king of Tyre and his own downfall. Uh, he made this prideful statement of, or belief that he was like a god. Now, whether he actually said that and walked around like that, I wouldn't be surprised based upon the culture and the times of the surrounding nations. Uh, or maybe it was something that was set up in his heart. We don't have clarity on that necessarily, but we know that God knows the heart. So in essence, he's saying, because you said you're a god, because you are so prideful, uh, you, I am I'm the one who's over all gods, and I will tr- show you true sovereignty and power. Uh, and then, so then it refer, refers to and shows the de- death and demise of the ty- king of Tyre. And then we get this interesting thing where God even tells Ezekiel to lament over the coming death of the king of Tyre. Uh, and it says this in verse 15 to 19 of chapter 28. It says, from the day you were created, you were blameless in your ways until wickedness was found in you. Through the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I expelled you in disgrace from the mountain of God and banished you, guardian cherub, from the, among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud because of your beauty. For the sake of your splendor, you corrupted your wisdom. So I threw you to the ground. I made you a spectacle before the kings. You profaned your sanctuaries by the magnitude of your iniquities and your dishonest trade. So I made fire come from within you, and it consumed you. I reduced you to ashes on the ground in the sight of everyone watching you. All those who among you, or among the peoples, sorry, all those who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You've become an object of horror and will never exist Again, so it's this incredible picture of God prophesying to the king of Tyre saying, hey, here's the deal. You were actually pretty good until you became prideful, until you became like you thought you were all that in a bag of chips, or I've heard one phrase, all you all that since, I don't remember now, pant with pockets. Um, uh, you're the next thing, the big thing since pants with pockets. It was like that filter. He I mean, became self-inflated. Pants with pockets are, it was a pretty big game changer, I gotta say. It's no very more, true. No more pantaloons. Yeah, I uh, bought a pair of board shorts recently because I need new ones. Sure. Because I've had one of the other ones for years. 
Uh, and I bought a pair. It has a side pocket, but no act- actual pockets, uh, uh, like normal pockets. And my last pair of board shorts had normal pockets. So I was like, oh, I missed that. Anyways, uh, back to back to Ezekiel. Um, <clears throat> so then in wrapping up chapter 25, we get this sidebar prophecy against Sidon, uh, Sidon, however you want to say it, uh, which was another key port in the city of Phoenicia, uh, which was located 25 miles north of Tyre. They're oftentimes, like I said earlier, named together in Tyre and Sidon. Um, and whenever it's, it's interesting, whenever, uh, uh, Tyre was kind of in like a economic disarray or kind of weakening in, in power and stature, you saw Sidon kind of elevate to that place. And so they kind of played the one, two roles for a while. Um, Ezekiel's told to prophesy against Sidon and where God will show his sovereignty through the plagues and bloodshed in the city, as well as among the people. Uh, and God in essence is going to do this. And this was interesting to, for me to read as I, I kind of picked up on this piece. Um, he's doing all of this in preparation for the return of his people. I don't know if I've ever picked up on that before in reading Ezekiel, um, but through the punishment attire, it's not just because he's been rebellious and they're prideful. That's part of it. But in essence, because he says, um, they'll no longer be bothered by prickly briars or painful thorns of all the neighboring peoples. So in essence, God is, is not just, uh, in essence, exiling his people. He's also preparing the land for the return of his people. Uh, and so that's why Tyre and Sodom are going to get prophesied against, uh, which was really interesting to me as I read it. Uh, we then will shift into 2 Kings chapter 25, verses 3 through 7, which is going to introduce the siege of Jerusalem, as well as the capturing of Zedekiah. Uh, and then when we read in Jeremiah, we actually get more detail in regard to this passage. Uh, and so we see this in Jeremiah 52 verses 6 through 11, uh, that there's a severe famine, that there was no more food, uh, that the city was broken into. It says all the warriors ran away, uh, even though the Babylonians or the Chaldeans surrounded the city. They tried to sneak out at night. They were being pursued by the Babylonians. And then Zedekiah ended up is captured at this point. Uh, as he's captured, his army flees, um, which typically a king's army would stay and fight for him, but his army fled. Uh, so kudos to Zedekiah for his leadership there. Uh, but they're also starving, so I get it. Uh, so then the Chaldeans bring uh, Zedekiah to Riblah to see the king of Babylon face to face, which is prophesied by uh, Jeremiah that he will see the king, face, the king of Babylon face to face. And in this moment, this is kind of a sad, sorrowful ending. Oh, not he. Zedekiah doesn't die. No spoilers there. Um, But the way that he is now put into exile, uh, all of his sons are killed before his eyes. So his line no longer continues. Uh, And then all along with all the commanders of the army. So those who were loyal to him and helping lead the city and also, in essence, these would be the ones that would try to protect and, and, you know, defend the king himself. Um, They were all killed before him. Uh, And so then Zedekiah, at this moment, his eyes are then gouged out. He's blinded by the Babylonians. This gives you a little bit of insight about how bad the Chaldeans were. um, But that's what happens in this moment. I thought you were going to make the, when you said that his sons and officials were killed before his eyes, I thought you were going for the joke of speaking of eyes and then just going, but no. I'm not witty like you. So I don't know if that's witty. It's just mean, (laughs) but that's where my mind went. (laughs) Well, I won't say that then. Uh, So anyways, his eyes are gouged out. They bound, they bind him in bronze chains. And they bring him into Babylon, Babylon, where in essence, he stays until he dies. Um, So then we shift into chapter 39 of Jeremiah, uh, which is the parallel account to chapter 52. So it's almost a double dipping. You see kind of the same account happen in both chapter 39 as well as chapter 52. Uh, So if you're reading the the book, I would say in order of chapters and books in the Bible, not chronologically, 
uh, as far as the events of history, you'll, you've already read, you will read chapter 39 and then get to chapter 52 and you'll be like, wait, didn't we read this a little bit ago? Yes, you did. Uh, but the events are happening at the same time, it's parallel accounts. Um, there is a few more details as far as locations, uh, as well as the names of Babylonian officials who entered the, the city. Uh, but it is the same result for Zedekiah, unfortunately. Uh, chapter 40, see, that was a joke and I hope you laughed. Chapter 40, <laughs> uh, chapter 40, we see uh, that Jeremiah is now freed by the Babylonians. Um, they come, he's still in the king's court, they show up, and because he's a, a prophet of God, they offer him favor to a degree. They, they give him two options. They can, he can stay in Jerusalem uh, or in Judah, or he can go to Babylon. Uh, as he's getting ready to make a decision, he's then told, hey, why don't you go up to Gedaliah uh, and be with him and... Uh, so Jeremiah does, he's actually giving a ration of food, which I think is a, a pretty high compliment because there's a famine in the land. Uh, and then he ends up staying in Judah and that's where he watches the rest of the destruction of the, the city of Jerusalem and Judah, uh, unfold. <clears throat> we see in second Kings chapter 25, eight through 21 is a, is a parallel account of that, uh, same interaction with Jeremiah being freed by the Babylonians and, uh, I don't Nebuzaradan uh, is like the the chief official uh, for Nebuchadnezzar, um, and we get this account of the destruction of the city of Ju- Judah, um, Jerusalem. Uh, sorry, Jerusalem. My bad. Uh, uh, and I'm, I actually just misspoke, so I'm going to say this: it's not a parallel account of Jeremiah 40. It's actually a parallel account of the rest of chapter 52, which again is the destruction of the city. Um, and there's a little more detail in the ch- in chapter 52, which is why I'll, I'll say this as we jump into chapter 52 this week. Um, it's going it, to d- detail uh, the destruction, the raiding of the temple, uh, destroying the temple. Uh, he takes the chief priest of Sariah, the second ranked priest in Zephaniah. He takes three doorkeepers from the temple along with court officials over the warriors, all sorts of royal aides, 60 common men, and brings them to the king of Babylon in Riblah, where Zedekiah was just brought to. Um, and they were then killed uh, and before the king, and they were left there. Uh, and then it says this uh, in verse 27 uh, of chapter 52. It says, so Judah went into exile from its land. So this is kind of like the wrapping up of the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, the people of God are, are led into exile, uh, and it kind of is wrapping up this significant moment that has been drawn out for weeks for us as we're reading through it. Um, and that's kind of where chapter 52 will end for our reading this week. Uh, we then will shift into second Chronicles, uh, and I'm going to read this portion cause it's only about seven verses. Um, and then, and then we jump into a new book this week. So, uh, and just hit the first chapter, but I'll give us a little bit of context is there this, too. Is this book going to be more cheery, Aaron, than the other books that we've been in? Second Chronicles chapter 36. <laughs> Uh, no, it's not. Uh, but this is what second Chronicles says. We, we see this, the snapshot of a, of a passage. It says this starting verse 15, but the Lord, the God of their ancestors sent word against them by the hand of his messengers, sending them time and time again, for he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. And so this is, this is detailing the conversation of, uh, of God's attempt to draw his people back to him. Um, and it's it's kind of like the the exclamation point or the period, if you will. Maybe that's a better way to say it. So it's not as celebratory, but it's, it is the period to the the people of Judah being led into exile. Uh, verse 16 says, but they kept ridiculing God's messengers, despising his word and scoffing at his prophets until the Lord's wrath was so stirred up against the his people that there was no remedy. So he brought, verse 17, up he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, 
who killed their fit young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary. He had no pity on young men or young women, elderly or aged. He handed them all over to him. He took everything to Babylon, all the the articles of God's temple, large and small, the treasures of the Lord's temple and the treasures of the kings and his officials. Then the Chaldeans burned God's temple. They tore down Jerusalem's wall, burned all its places, and destroyed all its valuable articles. He deported those who escaped from the sword to Babylon, and they became servants to him and his sons until the rise of the Persian kingdom. This fulfilled the word of the Lord through Jeremiah, and the land enjoyed its Sabbath rest all the days of the desolation until 70 years were fulfilled. And so again, as I've already said, like we're coming to the end of the destruction and the siege against Jerusalem. And now we're shifting into the exile to a degree. We're now shifting into the aftermath. Um, and and the reasoning behind it is, is God is again showing his, his patience, his grace to try and help them uh, to return to him. So he doesn't have to pour out his wrath, but they ridiculed, they ignored, they didn't pay attention. Um, and so there was those layers of, of reality in this passage that I thought was really fitting to understand this is why things took place and this is how it took place. Um, and then it says, and it was interesting to me as I read this, like the land enjoyed its Sabbath rest all the days of the desolation until 70 years were fulfilled, which that is going to go back to a prophetic book and talk more in detail about what that looks like. Um, but all that to say, like there's relief in the in the creation because God's wrath has been poured out and God's people are now removed from Jerusalem. Um, and so then for the rest of the the, the the remainder of the week is one chapter uh, in the book of Lamentations. If you don't know what Lamentations mean, in essence, it's grief uh, and it's sorrow and it's not fun to read. A lament, if you will. What's that? Just kidding. Uh, and so we're introduced to this book. I'm going to give you a little bit of context uh, and then I'll read a couple verses of Lamentations. Uh, it's a five chapter book. It is written by Jeremiah. Um, it can be seen as a book. And this is some of the, the, the Bible study notes that I took from uh, my CSB Bible study Bible. Uh, it can be seen as a book about pain, but with hope in God. Uh, and we'll get to see Jeremiah kind of vividly addressing uh, the extremes that he's navigating of human pain and suffering um, in a way that not many historical authors have done. We will see uh, in this book, in the five chapters, the despair and thoughts from Jeremiah's perspective as he's in Judah watching not just the exile, but the destruction unfold. Um, I love what the CSB Bible study says in introduction to Lamentation. It says, Lamentation gives no easy answer to the question. And the question it's referring to is, if all the events are under the hand of a personal God, then how can God's love and justice be reconciled with our pain? Um, and, and that's the question that is posed uh, that we can see pose, proposed, I guess is a better way to say it, uh, in the book of Lamentations, but it doesn't give e- easy answers to the question. Um, but it can help us, and I do appreciate this, it can help us meet God in the midst of our suffering and teaches us the language of prayer. Um, so I just thought it was a really unique take on the book of Lamentations um, for us as we're leaning into the next, really the next day after today, where we're finishing up the book of Lamentations itself, day and a half, I guess. Um, but each each chapter, all five of them, will consist of 22 verses, um, which is a Hebrew alphabet acrostic poem. Uh, so every stanza, so to speak, in the first four chapters associate with the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And then the fifth book or fifth chapter in this book is actually one line for each letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Um, and you'll also see this acrostic style poetry where you'll see one and five are par- parallels. Chapters one and five are parallels. Chapters two and four are parallels. And then three is like the peak, the climax of the poem itself. Uh, and so that's some of the poetry that exists here in Lamentations. 
Uh, Chapter 1 specifically, which is the one we're reading this week, will take focus on the city of Jerusalem. Uh, It will describe its afflictions, then explain the afflictions, followed by the effect of said afflictions. Um, Verses 1 through 11 uh, is interesting. You'll see this shift. Uh, But verses 1 through 11 are written from Jeremiah's perspective and observations as he's watching this unfold, the destruction and exile unfold. And then verses 12 to 22 are actually written as if Jerusalem is speaking herself. Um, most cities in the, I think every city in the, in, in the Bible takes on the feminine form, uh, referring to she. Um, and so it's, it's speaking as of herself. So Jerusalem is speaking on her, on her behalf. Um, and this is just a snapshot verses 16 to 18 out of Lamentations 1. Uh, it's probably the, the, one of the main, one of the passages that stood out to me. Uh, and then I will wrap up the first chapter and then we'll, next week we'll read two, three, four, and five. Woo! Uh, but it says this, verse 16 of Lamentations 1, it says, I weep. Now, this is Jerusalem speaking, and it's not Jeremiah speaking, but Jerusalem, in essence, is the one personified here. It says, I weep because of these things. My eyes flow with tears, for there is no one nearby to comfort me, no one to keep me alive. My children are desolate because the enemy has prevailed. Verse 17, it says, Zion stretches out her hands. There is no one to comfort her. The Lord has issued a decree against Jacob that his neighbors should be his adversaries. Jerusalem has become something impure among them. And then verse 18, the Lord is just, for I have rebelled against his command. Listen, all you people, look at my pain. My young women and my young men have gone into captivity. And so you hear and feel, and you're going to feel this throughout the entire books. And here's the deal. There are moments, especially in chapter three, that are hope-filled, that are, I mean, one of my favorite verses in all of scripture is found in Lamentations 3. Um, but it's, there's these hope-filled moments, but leading up to these, and even the aftermath of chapter three, you're going to see this deep sorrow, this deep brokenness. The, um, they're at the bottom of, of the valley. They're, they're at the lowest point. Uh, and Jerusalem and, and Jeremiah are lamenting how things played out. Uh, and so that's where, unfortunately, we get to end this week's reading is in the book of Lamentations. But It's, you know, it's just a cheery section that we find ourselves yeah. <laughs> in. Uh, well, as we wrap up at least our Bible reading this week, we will talk about what we learned today. For me, the verse that stood out the most in my readings was Ezekiel 18.23, and we read it already, um, but it's God saying, have I any pleasure in... In the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his ways and live. Um, and I think sometimes it's it's funny. I was watching a uh, there's like an ad that popped up when I, while, whilst I was on YouTube, and it was for a um, like a roundtable discussion on the Book of Exodus, and so it was kind of some Jewish scholars and some Christian scholars. And one of the more Christian scholars kind of put forward like, well, wouldn't it, wouldn't God have preferred um, that Pharaoh repented? of his sin instead of being destroyed. And one of the Jewish scholars said, that's such a Christian question to ask, um, which in, in the one sense I think is like, that's not true. Like you see in the Old Testament multiple times that there's there's times where God uh, wills that the wicked would repent instead of simply being destroyed. But the way I think we can apply it to our lives is very simply uh, in our hearts. Is this the way that we think? Uh, the, the people who have either wronged us or sinned against us or the people maybe that just more broadly we disagree with um, on issues, whether that be politicians or leaders or anything else, uh, do we hope in our hearts for a repentance and a return to the Lord? Or do we hope that you know they're going to get theirs and that eventually God is going to punish them for, for what they've done? Uh, do we allow our hearts to, to mimic the heart of God in those situations? I think it's, a, it's an important question to think about. Yeah, that's really good. Um, it's, it's funny. Uh, 
I've been saying a lot the last few weeks, I feel like that I've been able to be a part of the podcast, um, minus those two weeks that I skipped, is I've just been blown away by God's patience, by God's grace, by God's love and kindness um, to to not deal quickly with the rebellion of his people. And I don't say that in a negative connotation. I just say like he is probably, I mean, he is the most patient individual in all the world ever, ever created, or he wasn't created, but ever to have ever lived. Um, but it, it kind of hit me this week as we're coming to the end of the, I mean, as the exile has played out, um, sin is a real issue and it's a big deal. And and it's funny that it's it's all of a sudden like my my tune has changed to a degree. Like I'm still floored as I'm reading through, as I read through Ezekiel this week, as I read through Jeremiah, God, you are still patient. You are still talking about a remnant. You are still, you're removing the prickly briars and thorns in preparation to bring your people back. But the significance of the impacts of sin and rebellion cannot be misunderstood. And, and I think as Christians today, we live in grace and we live in the truth of, and the hope of Jesus. But even Paul dealt with this where it's like, well, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, right? So shouldn't we just continue sinning so grace can abound all the more? And Paul's response to that would be absolutely not. Um, and so I think it's important to remember, like sin is sin is serious. Sin is, sin is a problem that we can't just say, oh, God's grace will cover it. Sin is a problem because we need the grace and the hope in the life of Jesus. And so I think it's really important um, in the midst of the humility or the humbling reality of God's sovereignty and God's graciousness to understand he poured out and exiled his people because of their rebellion, because of their sinfulness. And so um, my hope and even as like as I'm reading through this and my prayer has been like, God, don't let me take sin lightly in my life. Don't let me take sin lightly in my heart. Help me to always remember that I need you, Jesus. And Evan, I think you said this years ago. I remember we were talking, I think, when we when I was a youth pastor and you were my, one of my leaders. Uh, but Many just the idea of re- like revival starts from a deep recognition and sincere understanding of sin in my life. And in light of that, the grace and the power of God to redeem me. And that's where like this picture of revival and renewal and life and joy comes into play. And I remember if it was a series we were talking about for youth ministry or whatever the case is, but that's always stuck with me in the reminder of like, God, I don't want to be afraid of my wretchedness, but don't let me see my wretchedness without the the, the full measure of your grace. And don't let me think I'm good enough to earn it. <laughs> yeah. uh, and so I think that's the tension for me. Like as I'm reading through this, like sin is a big deal. Um, and and to wrestle through the grace and the hope and the truth of of the gospel is really important but not to minimize my need for a savior, I think is important too, so. Yeah, we can't, we can't understand the power of God's grace without understanding the severity of our own sin. And it's a, it's a great reminder. Yeah. Uh, okay, well, we had a question coming this week, so let's take a moment to Yay! answer that. All right, so beloved listener Tim reached out with a, so he's reading through the- Hi, Tim. Hello. Uh, he's reading through the NKJV this year, and he noticed that, in 2 Kings 24, it says Jehoiakim was 18 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem three months. I mean, it's, it's that whole thing. Uh, but in 2 Chronicles 36, it says Jehoiakim was eight years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem for three months and 10 days. Uh, so was Jehoiakim eight or 18 when he became king? Uh, this, is, this is a really important question. Uh, so I looked more into it because my translation- My is, vote's 12. 
There you go. <laughs> we'll just meet in the middle. Uh, I guess that'd be 13. Sorry. Something like that. Dang it. Uh, so I, I, I like the ESV, although I think I might switch it up here in a couple of years just because like my goal is to kind of fill up my study Bible with notes. And then once it's been completed, just kind of tuck it away and then start a new one. But you don't need to know that. Oh, once you've years. arrived to fully understand once the study Bible, got once, it. Once every page <laughs> has some type of takeaway on it. Uh, anyway. Uh, Good luck with that. So the ESV actually has it as 18 in both. So I was kind of curious to look th- look through it. Uh, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament that was used, that was created in the intertestamental period. So basically after Malachi, before Matthew, uh, a little guy named Alexander the Great did some stuff. Just and, a small little guy. And, and because of him doing some stuff, a lot of people spoke Greek. And so all of a sudden it became pertinent to translate the Old Testament scriptures into Greek. Uh, so the Septuagint actually says 18, but the earliest manuscripts that we have of Hebrew in that Chronicles passage say eight. Uh, and then to be clear, all of the pa- all of the manuscripts we have of Kings say 18. So it's not like they both say eight or 18. There's kind of a little bit of confusion there. Um, <clears throat> a bit of an unsatisfactory answer. It sounds like it was probably a copyist error. Um, that's kind of like Norman Geisler's Come take on, on it. Uh, so remember that Chronicles is compiled after Kings. And so it is possible that when either the first person chronicling or as copies were made as time went on, eventually the, the age changed from 18 to eight. Um, and so if we're asking what, what age was he probably, I would land on 18 for a couple reasons. Um, he only reigns three months. So it seems hard to me that like, this eight-year-old kid takes a throne and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Like, I mean, it's possible, but it's like that, that very much sounds like you're an adult making your own decisions. Um, as well as, and Norman Geiser points this out as well. He remember he's, he's exiled to Egypt. And so that is also not necessarily the punishment you would dole out to a child. Like you would just kind of, and, and, and I mean, that's a little bit unfair because uh, there, there was such a thing as basically moving heirs of the throne and children over there. But it's one of those things where the way that Jehoiakim is talked about, it, it strikes me as you're talking about an adult and not a child. So mm-hmm. I would, I would wager that he was 18 when he, when he began his reign, uh, short, short as it may be, as Nathan pointed out a few weeks ago, it's impressive that he only reigned for three months and was still able to get the, to get the epitaph of, uh, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. But so there you go. Listen, some, some evil Kings got less, right? It's that's uh, not the shortest reign, is it? It wasn't like days. Well, it was the shortest reign of Israel is days. Uh, the shortest reign, I think Jehoiakim is the shortest reign in of Israel, Judah. If, in Judah, if Maybe. I remember correctly. I was just saying, like in general, the kings, like some kings had shorter reign and they were still called. True. Either, but yeah. What are you going to do? All right. Well, listeners, that does wrap it up for this week's episode of Let's Read the Bible. As a reminder, we are a podcast of the Grove Church, but we're not the only resource of the Grove Church. You can find all of our other resources on our website, grove.church, under our media page. And if this podcast has been a blessing to you and you would like to financially contribute to the ministry that the Grove Church does, you can also do that on our website. There's a give button in the upper right-hand corner. And hey, thank you all so much for listening. Have a great week.